0: Greetings. We hope you enjoy this podcast of a Science for the Public program. If you'd like to see the video of this program, just search the title on our website under the Archives tab at the top of the homepage, www.scienceforthepublic.org. Good evening and welcome to Contemporary Science Issues and Innovations. Tonight we focus on language and the brain, the acquisition and processing of language. Cognitive scientists study the uniquely human language phenomenon in many ways, but an unusual resource for such investigations is the rare ability to acquire Dozens of languages. The few people with that capability are known as hyperpolyglots. Our guest expert is cognitive scientist Ev Fedorenko. Dr. Fedorenko is an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School in Mass General Hospital and the director of the Ev Lab at MIT. Recently, she was featured in a New Yorker article about exceptional language ability, and she'll explain what this talent reveals about language language and the brain tonight. Dr. Fedorenko received her PhD in 2007 from MIT and 2014, she joined the faculty at Harvard Medical School and MGH. Her lab investigates the brain regions associated with both normal and impaired language uh, processing and she uses an array of methods that we'll hear about tonight. We are most fortunate to introduce Dr. Evelina Fedorenko. Welcome.
1: Thank you very much. It's nice to be here.
0: And I think to maybe start off, we should get an idea of language just generally. So one of the things that we see commonly now is language of dolphins and language of birds and so on. Yeah. Is there a difference between what we mean by human language and these other communications?
1: There is indeed. Um, all animal species communicate in some way, so there's transfer of information. Um, but one thing that humans can do, and arguably a lot of other species don't do to the same extent, is being able to take a range of communicative signals we have, like words and phrases, and recombine them in new ways to make new complex meanings. So I can um, share with you any arbitrary thought I have about the world. Um, and um, in most other animal communication systems um, the range of meanings that uh, gets across is just much, much more limited.
0: Animal, sophisticated animal uh, uh, communication forms have a syntax like you would have in, uh, in human language?
1: So that's, um, that's debated. So syntax is basically a set of rules for how bits of communication signals combine. Um, And there is certainly some um, structure in a lot of animal communication systems. Um, So two things that make human language very different is, um, one, the range of communication signals that we have. So, for example, the um, number of words that we have, which refer to all sorts of diverse concepts, um, and um, this kind of ability um, to create almost an infinitude of New meanings. Um, so syntax, a lot, a lot of people would say, is present to some extent in some animal communication systems. So there's right. some structure there. So in things like birdsong, especially. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, whether um, whether semantic compositionality is present, whether different bits of meaning refer to distinct concepts and then get recombined into a complex meaning that we just don't know yet. And it's mm-hmm. really hard to study because it's hard to know what birds talk about.
0: Well, and can other animals like report what they had for dinner or talk about two weeks from now they're gonna do, which is very common with English. A lot of with people the, assume
1: not, yeah. but um, a lot of that, you know, some animal researchers would just say, look, we just don't know.
0: Ah, <laughs> so, I see, the fudge, Because the those questions there. are
1: really hard to get at, uh, right, you can uh, imagine. You think, but, okay,
0: yeah. all right, now we have types of languages as well, and moving toward this hyper polyglot thing, mm-hmm. that then presumably people learn these different types of languages. Could you remind us about these different types like case and? and sure.
1: yeah, so um, languages differ in many different ways. Um, so one fundamental distinction that um, uh, so I should also I should start by saying that there is over six thousand languages yeah. around the yeah. world, and a lot of them are very poorly studied and not at all studied by cognitive scientists and neuroscientists. So yeah. there are some kind of linguistic descriptions of those languages, but you know, no empirical work trying to understand the processing of those languages. Yeah. So whatever we've learned um, comes from you know a handful of families and a handful of languages. Um, but even from that sample that we have been quite extensively studying. Um, We know that um, there is a big distinction between languages um, that use word order primarily to convey complex meanings. So um, in English, um, if I say Um, Mary kissed John, you know that it's Mary that's doing the kissing and not John. Um, And even if I say some implausible sentence like, the pizza ate the boy, and I I ask people, what do you think it means? They'll say, well, it's a crazy meaning, but it means the pizza ate John. It's just weird. Uh, Or ate the boy or something like that. Um, And other languages... um, use a very different system to to convey complex meanings, and that is they mark um, the roles that the words play in an event in the words themselves. So they would have something like Mary, um, actor marker, uh, kissed, John, um, receiver marker, or something like that. And having those markers allows uh, those languages to move words around in any which way. So for example, languages like Russian my native language or other similar languages like Finnish for example Call can uh, <laughs> can move words around very flexibly so yeah. i can say um Mary kissed John. Mary John kissed kissed John Mary, and I can convey the same event right. because you I marked those the subject and roles object unambiguously. The verb are. Right? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. All right. So, yeah. with so that's one case languages. All you have to do
0: is learn the how many cases in Finnish. I forget. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> so we'll, we'll come back to yeah. that. Yeah. Now, what about now? There is more and more depend, demand for, say, Chinese, and Chinese is tonal. That's so right. what does that mean? What makes that difficult?
1: That's a whole other um, distinction. So all languages use um, pitch um, and intonational contours, right? So my pitch goes up and down as I talk to uh, convey different aspects of meaning. So I can say, I went to the store, or I can say, I went to the store, right? And those are different meanings. But languages like Chinese also use pitch to differentiate word meanings. So. The classic example is um, ma, which um, uh, with a particular tone means mother, with another tone it means horse, and then there's two other versions of that or something like that. And so that's also something that, um, you know, as a kid learning that language, you have to learn that pitch in that language can distinguish meanings, um, which is, you know, similar to how sounds can distinguish meaning and say English is just a different feature of the acoustic signal yeah, right, that can right, differentiate. Right, right, um, right. But it yeah, can right. make
0: it just quite difficult for people to learn after Indeed. that optimal age and, and, yes. and so on then. So mm-hmm. we have those different types of languages and we'll come back with that. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of language acquisition. There are many cases where, for whatever reason, children have not learned at the optimal time. The brain changes as it matures. What is your take on that? What What happens with, say, a delay, or and also for second language acquisition?
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, if you learn as many people do as teenagers, is mm-hmm. that a problem?
1: Yeah. So that has been. Um Uh, a rich topic of study for many years Um, and it does seem that there is um, a certain age after which some aspects of language are especially hard. And those um, uh, tend to be syntax, so things like word order rules, where little function words like determiners, like the, go, um, cases, exactly, in case-marked languages, Um, and also um, articulation, so production of sounds without uh, an accent, right? So if you learn a language late in life, you tend to have an accent in a foreign language. Um, And interestingly, other aspects of um, language learning seem to go just fine if you learn a language later, for example, learning new words. So that seems to be unaffected. Um, In general, it seems like the earlier a child gets exposed to a language, the easier it is for them. Um, to learn this mapping between, because language is effectively a mapping between a set of communicative signals and um, meanings, right? So we learn how words map onto uh, particular concepts in the world, and we learn how um, combinations of words map onto some complex meanings. Um, And uh, that seems to be easiest to learn when you're little. Okay.
0: Can we go to the language areas of the brain? And for things like accent, does, is is there anything about the maturing of the brain, that process that affects uh, your ability to, uh, you know, uh, learn another language most yeah. of the time without an
1: accent? That's certainly true, but um, we don't understand yet how that's implemented. Okay. But um, I can tell you a little bit about what we know about um, okay. language regions so in the brain. Bra- so people mean uh. many different things when they talk about language. So. Um, Language involves two directions of communication, right? There's comprehension. So as I'm talking, you're understanding what I'm saying. And um, uh, right now I'm producing language. So at the very broad level, um, production is taking a thought in my head and converting it into a linguistic code, a code which somebody else can understand. And in comprehension, you're taking a linguistic signal and then you're trying to extract presumably the intended thought from it. Sometimes this fails, but most of the time it works, and that's why we can communicate successfully. And so this conversion between thoughts and linguistic utterances is what I have mostly focused on, and that's shown kind of schematically here in the red box. Mm -hmm. So that's what I refer to as kind of high-level aspects of language. But then there's a lot of kind of helper mechanisms, right? So before we start interpreting linguistic signals, we have Uh, machinery in our um, speech cortices, auditory mechanisms, that deal with just processing of the speech signal. So those um, areas in the brain, for example, don't care if you're listening to your native language or a foreign language, Mm -hmm. they respond just as strongly. Mm -hmm. So they care about the acoustic features. But then once you're able to interpret the signal as something meaningful, then these higher order areas will kick in, which I'll show you in just a little bit. Um, And similarly in um, individuals who have acquired um, uh, written language uh, and uh, literacy, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, they have they develop parts of their visual cortex that now specialize for processing letters uh, in okay. the script that so you have learned. So it's very
0: clear to you that there is a difference. Yes, yes. Uh. So
1: um, one, one way in which this um, specialized visual region has been important is in showing that you can develop these highly specialized bits of the brain as a function of experience, Mm -hmm. right? So oftentimes people say, oh, if we have something in your brain that is specialized for a particular function, it must be innate. And that's just not Mm -hmm. true at all. Mm -hmm. We Mm -hmm. now see very clearly that there's these regions which are highly specific. They respond to letters, but not to letters in a script that you Mm -hmm. don't Mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. Um, And clearly those we have learned when we're learning to read Mm -hmm. and need to distinguish between these little black things that all look really similar, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, different, very important ways, and um, uh, we can use them to convey linguistic messages as well. So that's on the side of perception, and then on the side of production, we can um, output um, language through our articulators. So there is some parts of the motor cortex that are active when we uh, produce speech. And again, just like the perceptual regions, those articulatory regions, mm-hmm. they don't care if I'm reciting Shakespeare or mm-hmm. saying ba-ba-ba-ba. <laughs> those are just the regions that move our mouth to produce um, the signals. Um, And then again, if we have uh, literacy, we can type a message or write a message Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. use different Mm -hmm. parts Mm -hmm. of our motor Mm -hmm. cortex. And so what I think is kind of, um, uh, and well, some may disagree, but I think the most exciting part of language is this ability to convert complex abstract thoughts into this code that we can share Mm -hmm. with one another. Mm -hmm. And that arguably has laid the foundation of human culture and ability to teach each other skills and transfer knowledge over generations and so that's what um, I mostly focus on. Here um, I'm showing you a set of regions that are active when we produce and understand language. And so these are the, what I refer to as high-level language regions. So these are the regions that translate between thoughts and Be- Before
0: that, can mm-hmm. you just tell us which side of the brain is Sorry, that? yes, okay. this is,
1: um, so here I'm showing a projection of um, language activation. So this is from uh, a whole large number of participants, from 220 participants that yeah. uh, we've scanned um, on a language task. And this is a projection of the left hemisphere. Okay, so, so um, that
0: side. Exactly, and that's
1: where um, uh, language is predominantly happening in most individuals okay. um, although um, there is some role to the right hemisphere homologs of those regions uh, I... which is also quite poorly understood but um, the, the, way, the reason that we know that these the left hemisphere regions are more important is that um, when you have um, Damage to your left hemisphere, you are more likely to end up with language problems. Okay, um, and so that's so we'll where the actual happens. I think
0: so. There's your pretty left hemisphere. So that's what does right. it mean there? <laughs>
1: that's right. So so these are basically regions um, that are active. So the contrasts um, that you can use to find these regions are contrast between meaningful and structured language and some um, control condition which is matched perceptually but doesn't have meaning or structure. So um, you can, for example, contrast people listening to a story in their native language Mm -hmm. versus to a story in an unfamiliar language, Mm -hmm. right? Where they're getting a lot of the same, similar perceptual input, but they just can't map it onto any representations of meaning. That okay, they have so does
0: way. that mean that if they, they that if I listen to you in Russian and if I don't understand Russian then that will be processed a little differently, that will be lighting right. up a different area. That's
1: right. It's so just noise
0: is, to the brain. Exactly, uh-huh. exactly.
1: It's, I mean it's not quite noise, it's a very yeah, particular kind right, of noise. So right. In auditory cortex um, uh, we have um, these regions that actually quite recently Um, were shown to be exquisitely selective for speech sounds, so those regions will be working really hard if I speak Mm -hmm, mm Russian to you, but this high-level system, not so much because you can't interpret the signal. Okay, all right.
0: right. Do the same areas get activated by, say, music?
1: No, so that's a very good question. Um, There's been a lot of debate um, in cognitive science for many years about the extent to which other forms of complex thought and cognitive, complex mm-hmm. cognitive processing shares machinery with language. So there's a lot of there's a long philosophical tradition where people have argued that basically language lay the whole foundation for a lot of complex thought, including um, things like arithmetic and logic, um, and maybe the ability for complex hierarchical planning of action sequences and a lot of um, things like that. Um, And people have also noted parallels between, say, language and music, as you mentioned, because music is also a complex, hierarchically structured stimulus. Yeah,
0: organized sound. Right, right,
1: right. And so so this is actually the question that drew me to um, cognitive neuroscience at first um, because I wanted to know if um, anything that we use for language um, is specialized for Mm -hmm, language. mm -hmm. Because to understand what the language mechanisms do, it's really important to understand how selectively they engage in processing language mm-hmm, versus mm-hmm, other mm-hmm, kinds mm-hmm, of stimuli, mm-hmm. because the kinds of computations that go on would be very different if a region, uh, brain region, performs, um, uh, processes both language and music compared to if it processes just language and mm-hmm, not music. Mm-hmm, so those mm-hmm. are li- fundamentally distinct um, theoretical constructs, and so. Um, and fMRI, functional MRI, which is what where, this image um, that I was just showing you uh, was generated by, um, is uh, the best method we have to ask whether two bits of the brain or two bits of the mind, underlyingly, what we're interested as, as cognitive scientists is the mind, whether um, uh, two uh, mechanisms are shared between mm-hmm. two mm-hmm. cognitive processes, mm-hmm. right? And so we can say, um, take a language task, find regions in your brain that respond during that language task, and then ask do the very same regions respond when you listen to music or when you engage in solving math problems (laughs) or something (laughs) like that? And it turns out that in spite of claims to the contrary um, uh, these regions that support language are strikingly selective for language. So it seems like all of the other forms of complex thought go on elsewhere in the brain. Now there's a little bit of a caveat such that we don't know whether language may be important in the development of those capacities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and to do those kinds of experiments, you would want access to kids who didn't get linguistic input. Unfortunately, that right, doesn't right, normally right, happen. Right, 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 right. But um, in an adult brain, um, it seems like the mechanisms that process language do not process other complex um, um, inputs, do not engage in other forms of complex thought. And it's very consistent now with also evidence from um, very severe aphasia. Okay. So, um, There is, um, you know, many people have heard of aphasia as basically referring to general kind of language problems that occur in adulthood after um, stroke damage or head trauma or something like that. Um, And um, a very interesting case of aphasia from the point of view of cognitive scientists, it's a very devastating condition, but sometimes um, individuals get really, really severe left hemisphere damage, Mm -hmm. where effectively the whole language system... Is gone.
0: You mean both for comprehension and production? Broca and right. or some type of That's right, that's okay. right.
1: So um, they basically lose all of the mappings between thoughts and language. Um, and as of a few years ago, a lot of people vehemently would argue that that would leave you uh, unable to engage in any form of complex thought, Mm -hmm, and that just mm -hmm. turns out to be wrong. So those individuals are perfectly fine doing math and reasoning Mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. others' minds Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and engaging in solving logic problems. Mm -hmm. It seems like the only thing they lose is this code, this ability to transfer thoughts into a code that we can share with one another. Okay, that's, which that's is quite really striking. good <laughs> yeah.
0: but That's that's been on like the books for a long time, these, these uh, whether these things are very specifically yeah. organized in the brain, so that's uh, it's quite good to know. Since you mm-hmm. brought up the aphasia issue, it seems as though that's been an area that has been particularly rich in yeah. in showing uh, some of the uh, specific areas of the brain. Anyway, yeah. tell us about it, would you? The, the, so, yeah. uh, uh, I don't know which kinds you look at, which aphasia yeah. is and the language breakdown so, um, usually.
1: So, aphasia, um, yeah, aphasia generally refers to a broad class of problems, spanning uh, problems uh, with speech perception, with the high level comprehension or production, um, and articulation. So, it's spanning kind of a whole um, range of possible problems. Um, uh, the evidence that we've had from aphasia over, you know, the many years, and that's kind of the evidence that started the whole field of cognitive science from um, mm-hmm. Paul Broca and mm-hmm. later Wernicke, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, who reported these patients with um, problems that seemed, even in those early patients, quite selective to some aspects of language. Um, the the reason that that evidence has been so valuable is that. Um, above and beyond what methods like fMRI can tell us, those methods can tell us whether something is causally important, right? So if I damage a brain region and following that damage, you're unable to perform a certain function, it says, okay, this region was really fundamental to performing that function, right. and we can um, try to make similar kinds of inferences based on functional MRI data. But it's um, it's not causal; it's correlational by nature. We okay. can see regions that are active, but only a subset of them may be really critically important for. Right? Could
0: function. you mm-hmm. tell us, please? A, a lot of people may not know mm-hmm. what Broca's aphasia the, the 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 loss of production, the loss of comprehension. Yeah. Could you give us a little detail on yeah, that? So So this is actually, I mean, and then we'll find um, out how you study these things.
1: So there is many forms of aphasia, and there is no, (laughs) I would say, in the field of um, neuropsychology, so the field of um, uh, um, cognitive science that focuses on patient evidence. I don't think there is clear agreement right now about how to divide up different forms of damage, whether particular regions correspond to particular deficits. But there are certainly distinct types of um, patients that are observed, right? And so two. Two common kinds are um, patients that are classically referred to as Broca's aphasia, even though it's not clear whether damage to Broca's area as it is defined okay, by scientists. Right, right, problem. Right. But um, symptomatically, the problems that they show is that they can't seem to output language. Okay. So they can understand things just fine. You can talk to them, you can you know, probe their comprehension, you can do um, uh, tasks which tap comprehension, and they'll be pretty much fine understanding almost all of language but they have a hell of a time getting language out. And it's really frustrating Uh, and and debilitating and often is accompanied by depression because it's really um, difficult when you can't express yourself.
0: Right, is there a sort of parallel between what most of us go through? You can't recall a name, you can't recall of the term for something, and then it comes to you at three o'clock in the morning or something like that. Yeah. But the, you can almost tell how many syllables, maybe what it starts with. Is that similar to what we're talking about here? And
1: it's a deep question of whether the mechanisms are exactly the same. No, so no, you're referring to similar. Yeah. Is I it think. The, I mean, the, right. I would say yes. Um, uh-huh. And basically, it's. Um, um, uh, what you refer what you refer to as the tip of the tongue state, yes, where you almost have the are. word and you yes. can't get it. I mean, some forms of um, this Broca's aphasia or non-fluent aphasia are really severe, and the person can only output like one syllable, oh, like ba, ba, ba. So yeah, yeah. they try to do what they can using kind of contextual information, but it's right. a really limited kind of... Um, um, Signal that they can um, output, uh, but it varies in severity quite a lot from yeah, kind of mild I, I problems I with accessing words to right, basically right. an ability to produce anything but a single syllable um, or something like that. Another good analogy for thinking about Broca's aphasia is for. Um, those of us who lived in um, less developed countries or old enough to have used telegrams, you can think about um, just, the I, language output where you have to pay for each unit of right. text, right? Yes. And so you can just imagine that for these patients, it's just much more costly. Each bit of information, they, each, each bit of signal they produce, they have to pay for it, yes. right? It's yes. really, really yeah. difficult. And so um, uh, if you've, um, if you may have maybe have heard the term telegraphic speech, yes. it's exactly referring to that analogy, such yeah. that when you only have um, a little bit of um, a signal that you can output, you resort to producing this kind of um, uh, not, you know, it's language like output, but it's not full language, right? You're reducing words, yeah. um, you're compressing, you're getting rid of all of the function words, you're, you know, maybe manipulating order in a way that's right, right. making things. At least possible to convey something Now, but.
0: do these when you with that kind of an impairment do people sort of know what they want to say but they are unable to generate the language is that the idea yeah. okay yeah. then with like something like where the comprehension is yeah. affected like vanicus or, right. or the, um, right. something like that is right what's so, the, that yeah. like? so the
1: other type of um, the other common type of patients is patients um, with um, comprehension problems so um, there, they basically—it seems like—they can't extract information from the linguistic signal, and they can output speech just fine in the sense that they can get the words out. But oftentimes, the output that they produce is kind of really not very meaningful. They'll so it could be they'll incoherent. make up words, or the signal will be incoherent. Okay. Um, they'll use words in the wrong ways. Okay. Um, and so they have some access words but they seem to have lost the relationship between words and meanings okay. so they can't make that linkage somehow. Okay.
0: All right. So, and there are areas sort of specific for these c- capabilities, is that, a, that, um, that is... It's,
1: so that's can, kind of the historic sort of, view. Okay. Um, so that's, uh, that's a view that still appears in uh, textbooks. Um, I would say... Um, and I don't want to endorse that view because I think so there's a lot understood. of research to be You're done. The <laughs> but, but the current, but the current, um, the current um, evidence seems to suggest more that it's white matter pathways oh, I that um, okay. whose so damage results down, in this different. In the, exactly. Okay. So it's whatever is connecting these regions that we see projected onto the Kay. brain. Uh, whatever goes on that, um, w- which is a lot of basically wires, right? Yeah, wiring up like different wires, parts of the so, brain yeah, together. So yeah. it seems like. What explains um, uh, a lot of the evidence that we see from deficits comes from um, damage to different kinds of wire bundles, okay. as all opposed right. to particular cortical So not regions. a geography
0: necessarily. That's right. Okay, That's right. then the next thing is these language learners. The, that So when yeah. you're a child, you can learn a Anything. language or two or yeah. something or pretty tent. easily. <laughs> well, yes, yeah. we should get yeah. them all exposed there. Yeah. But then, so, can you tell us about how you got into this super? There are many people who can speak, say, four languages, right. five, six yeah. languages. Yeah. It gets, I guess, more rare as you yeah. as you go along. Yeah. But yeah. you stumbled on this super yes. learner. <laughs> tell us about that, yeah. if you would, so, please. Um, yes, yeah, so, so this, um, this um,
1: topic was, um, the topic of in general, language expertise has been of interest to me ever since I started um, looking at um, language disorders in some ways, because it's kind of the extreme case, yeah, right So yeah. language disorders le- lead to some difficulties with some aspects of language. Um, and maybe we can understand something about how the system is broken by also looking at people yeah. who are really, really good at some aspects yeah, of language. Yeah. And what it means to be a language expert can be defined in many different ways, right Some people have vast vocabularies some people are really really articulate and don't make speech errors when they speak and are really um um, you know compelling and conveying ideas or something like that but one form of expertise is this um seeming ability to acquire many many forms of mappings between thoughts and linguistic forms by learning dozens of languages it's a very interesting population that hasn't been um studied at great Depths or any depths, really. There's very little work right. on it's um, the first these time I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so these are people um, that normally grow up in monolingual countries, oh. and this is anecdotal so far. So it seems like it's not the case that um, these are people who already have exposure to a bunch oh, of languages and then want more. <laughs> but yes. instead, they're in these societies where there's one dominant language, and somehow they get interested in where. Um, um, launching a website in the near future that will advertise to the polyglot communities um, once it's up, um, where we're trying to just get basic information on what drives people to do this. Um, seems like there's quite a lot of variability on why people get started uh, on this, kind of as a, as a not hobby, or they start mm-hmm. learning a language mm-hmm. and it's just really easy for them, and they're mm-hmm. like, okay, I'll mm-hmm. try another mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, Some people seem to want to read literature in other languages, and that kind of motivates them to try to um, 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 learn all these different um, languages. But um, there is no real systematic Review as of yet, uh, but what? But, you're
0: going to uh, write that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: well, hopefully, hopefully, we'll have enough information soon to um, to do that. But yes. but yes. Yeah, so so, so um, the questions we're interested in is, you know, are these people different somehow from the typical population? Yeah, right. Are their brains different? Are their processing mechanisms different? You know, what makes them good? Are they good at everything else? Are they just generally smarter yeah, than right, everyone, right, right, right. or is it specific to language? So those are the kinds of questions we're hoping to. Um,
0: and do you have any answers yet? Well, you, we have, you mentioned that yes. astounds me that mm-hmm. they come so far yeah. from uh, monolingual cultures. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yes.
1: Um, so um, we've um, so far we've uh, conducted uh, one um, neuroimaging study with hyperpolyglots. So it's, it's actually polyglots and hyperpolyglots. So we have um, about eight people in our sample who are um, ten between 10 and 55 languages and then uh-huh. another <laughs> 55 <laughs> yeah it just it just seems. I mean of course it's like what when you say this you have to keep in mind that there is a range of proficiency I understand right? I understand Almost all the people who have such vast numbers they'll have you know and sometimes quite a few languages at which they're really quite proficient but then there is a long tail of languages yeah, where they've learned yeah, something yeah, but yeah, um, yeah. would not be able to kind of fully converse um, yes. with a native speaker so um, For starters, what we were interested in looking at is just the basic properties of the language architecture. So, um, remember um, I mentioned that um, um, the way that we find the language system is we contrast the processing of structured and meaningful Mm -hmm. sentences Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. short stories to kind of perceptually match but meaningless information, like for example, Mm -hmm. a foreign language. Mm -hmm. So we've now collected that contrast on a very large number of typical individuals. So we have um, in our database, we have over 700 participants. And so I was interested whether relative to that distribution of um, people, Um, the language regions of hyperpolyglots, when they process their native language, right? Because that's a comparison right now. First, Mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. for basic language Mm -hmm, processing, mm -hmm. is something different about how their brain works when they do that, right? So um, does the language topography look the same or do they process Mm -hmm, language mm -hmm, in some wholly different mm -hmm, um, set of regions? Um, um, to To the extent that it's the same system, are these regions bigger or smaller or more or less lateralized, right? So or, or those are all the features that we can um, look at. And so, oh. so here um, uh, uh, we're showing um, uh, brain, ac- brain activations for this language task um, mm-hmm. in four polyglots and four um, typical participants. So, the so poly- on the left, the... you see polyglots. On the right, you see typical participants. And for these pairs, um, uh, they're really well matched. So they're matched on IQ, general intelligence. Okay. Ah. They're matched on age. Sex, handedness, so they're kind of as matched as you can have them. Um, And what you can see is that the general topography um, that emerges... It's very different. Right. would have reversed It's it's similar in where it is, but um, the size of the regions is really quite strikingly different. So what we find is that polyglots just don't activate the same language system to the same extent. Um, And this is... um, really interestingly parallel to um, what we've known about um, um, efficient processing and motor learning. So there's been um, a few studies over the last couple decades showing that when people learn a new complex motor task, they activate large chunks of their motor cortex. And as they get better and better and better, the activations kind of shrink. Just less energy, Exactly, more efficient processing. But it's interesting because a priori I could have predicted something like the opposite, yes, right? Because I you would could imagine that <laughs> polyglots, when they process language, right, maybe right. they process much more richly, exactly, right? right? And exactly. construct, you know, much more complex representations right, of right. the signal or something. But it seems like that's not the case. And at least um, so far, based on, you know, the sample we have, which is like 20 people, it seems like um, they don't have to work their regions, language regions, quite as much. That
0: is really interesting. You yeah. thought
1: so. And, and another interesting thing is that it's not the case that they just... Um, have reduced activations for anything. So we had also um, a control task which was a demanding working memory task where you had to remember a set of locations and for that task it looks very similar between polyglots. So it's okay. not like there is some right. ubiquitous reduction in activation it, it, exactly. for anything. But it's also um,
0: distinct areas then here. Yes, These are d- truly right. language uh, right. areas lighting up. Yeah? So once again, this, the ones on the left are the polyglots that's right. and the ones Lose. on the right are controls. Okay. Yeah, Yeah. All matched right. controls. Monolinguals or yeah. Something. Oh, that's very, yeah. very clever. So something
1: is, um, something is um, working less. Exactly. <laughs> Cells are firing not as much, uh, right. which is the signal that we're trying to measure with FMR indirectly exactly. through blood flow changes. Exactly. But, um, yeah, so that's, um, that's interesting. And there's, you know, there's many other questions that we're asking. So um, we also asked, um, We looked at the processing of different languages in polyglots. Um, Like
0: different types of languages? So far, just different
1: languages in terms of proficiency. So every polyglot, every hyperpolyglot can say, okay, here's a rank order of the languages in how well I know them. And we looked at how the language regions respond to languages in terms of um, proficiency. And we generally find that there is kind of a drop-off as people become less and less uh, proficient. So... um, um, to me this suggests that basically um, the activity in this language system um, indexes kind of how much meaning you can extract from the signal. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I don't mm-hmm. know if you mm-hmm. speak like a little bit of Spanish maybe or something. Mm-hmm. So if I talk to you in Spanish, maybe you would um, uh, activate your language system a little bit less than English, but still a lot more than, for example, for Russian, which you may not know at all. Well, right?
0: there is a... level of expertise in the number of languages so they're not necessarily equal proficiency all the way through but they still acquire languages with much less effort than a lot of other people It's do. actually they not drawn. clear. Ah.
1: The effort part is not clear. Ah. There is actually many, well, there is certainly some hyperpolyglots who say, I'm not sure if it's easier for me to learn these languages. I work very hard to learn ah, them. Okay. I enjoy it. I enjoy okay. the process, but it's not, it, it's not easy. Right. And then there's other polyglots who say, yeah, I find that it's kind of and no effort at all. I just get this information, and I can just easily pick it up. I see. Um, and um, again, so this is something that we're hoping to study yes. through these behavioral surveys of you know as many polyglots as we can access. Um, it's it's possibly correlated also with how people learn languages. Yes. So there are some polyglots and hyperpolyglots who learn from books or textbooks, yes. like yeah, yeah. like I would, for yeah, example, yeah, uh, yeah. learn from a foreign a foreign textbook. Um, and there's others who just go out to a marketplace and just start strike conversations with people who speak a different language and try to figure something out, which um, to me as a kind of your, you know, canonical, socially um, introverted um, academics seems really hard. Exactly. And yet there's, some people seem really good at that. Right. Um, um, they can just, you know, so maybe they have really good social skills such that they can right. leverage that in some way to extract some meaning and then eventually, you know, build off of that or something exactly. like that. Um, but again, like... I would like to be able to say that you know forty percent of foglots, prefer learning this way and, you know, 20% of this and we
0: just don't know yet. Okay, that's good. And another thing just on that is Mm -hmm. that there might be a difference in the type of language, like everyday language has a vocabulary this big and then reading language is much different, the structure, everything is much different. So that may weigh in there also. But in our Mm -hmm. remaining time, I would like to ask about your methods. Mm -hmm. And you've mentioned fMRI a, a lot and so on. When you mentioned the wires in yes. like say the white matter and mm-hmm. the gray matter, these layers in the brain, does fMRI capture the stuff that's in the white matter so for there example? is so
1: um, so magnetic resonance MRI itself mm-hmm. can be mm-hmm. used to study white okay. matter so there is basically different um, uh, sequences that capture different aspects of the uh, of the brain signal. In this case, it's anatomy, right? So it's, yes. it's a static thing. So yeah. fMRI is something, functional MRI is something that dynamically changes as okay. we process yeah, information. Yeah, yeah, okay. But then we can also take just pictures of static anatomy and say, you know, how big is your inferior frontal gyrus? Okay. Or let's look at your bundles, right? And for, for looking at the wire bundles, there's different kinds of sequences okay. that we use, but we, can, right. we can do right. that. Um,
0: so yeah. you might have different techniques or That's equipment right. or t- yeah. technology to it's the same approach machine what you're and going you can after. Do,
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, you can think of it like MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, is a very versatile technology, right? I can yes. scan people who, um, you know, may have um, a tumor in their liver, right? Yeah. And I can also look at to use it. So, so it's a versatile tool, um, and we use it in different ways to look at, for example, brain anatomy versus brain function, sometimes okay. trying to relate those to each other, but or different aspects of brain anatomy, like, um, you know, white versus gray matter and things
0: right. like that. Right. And is that your primary approach then? is, the, as the, I guess so everybody's far. using this. Well, <laughs> it, apparently it can do so much. So that it was can, just
1: yeah. So one thing that it can do, one thing that it's really lacking, is um, being able to track the processing of information really fast. Ah. So it measures um, uh, the signal that is related to blood flow changes. Yes, so when I your particular see. brain region works, Cells fire, right. and then they get depleted in oxygen and glucose, and new oxygenated blood has to come in and bring new supplies to that area, okay. and that's the signal that we measure those changes. Um, and that takes a few seconds. So if I show you a sentence, it'll take about six seconds in the language regions to see an increase in response. Ah, I see. Right. Whereas, I see. of course, we understand language on much faster uh, time scales. I understand. Right. 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 And so, for questions where um, we're interested in when something happens as we're processing language online fast um, we turn to methods um, which have higher temporal resolution so there is a method called magnetoencephalography (laughs) so this is um, uh, also using um, um, uh, somewhat similar signals but not quite in the same way so MEG and there we have um, uh, the ability to track exactly when things happen, and that's really helpful. We'll lose a little bit of the ability to know where the signal came from, um, but we can know when different uh, kinds of information become available or become processed. Um, And another method that's kind of becoming really, really um, uh, invaluable to cognitive science is um, uh, intracranial recordings. So every now and then, uh, patients with epilepsy would need to undergo uh, a surgery for resection. Okay. And so while... um, and basically, what usually happens is that they have um, the first surgery, and then they get implanted with some grids okay. right on their brain. Okay. Sometimes there's also depth recordings from uh, things that are not accessible from the surface. But a common thing is to put a grid right on the, your brain, right? And um, and then you typically wait for the next seizure to happen to figure out where the uh, epileptogenic cortex is, so that you can resect this and hopefully That's these people. Yeah, it's 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 great that this can happen, and it's actually amazing how much of the brain you can cut out. Out without, <laughs> without yeah, uh, subsequent right, right. problems. But anyway, while they're um, kind of in the hospital for a few days waiting for that next seizure, you can come and kindly ask them to read some sentences or listen to music or do whatever tasks. Mm-hmm. And then we can get very precise temporal and spatial information. Wow. Um, yes. And that's just, that's been, and it's very precious data. There's not many patients undergo these procedures, yes. but um, we try to, you know, make the best of this. Well, you're um, in the so best
0: area. I mean, the MGH and, uh, and Harvard right. Medical School together. Yeah, you've got it hospitals. all sewed up, and, yes. yes, and, and yes. in your lab. Yeah. So this is fabulous. It mm-hmm. seems as though this technology is really helpful. It really yeah. gives you, like, the, there's less ambiguity or yeah. something. In for some questions, they, it's for great. Yeah, for some right. questions,
1: it's really right. been invaluable. But language
0: is difficult. There's yeah. no question about it. Yeah, because it. we
1: have no animal models. So um, uh, like we started this conversation, right? There's some aspects of language like the basic motor control of articulators or basically basic perception of the speech signal that you can kind of study in Mm -hmm. monkeys. But beyond that, it's just really different. And so um, and we can't mess with human brains on that's purpose. That's right, um, that's right. You know, We can try leverage data from strokes, but strokes are right, messy, right. Um, and they don't cleanly affect exactly. language. So <laughs> it's, um, right, it's, yeah. it's challenging. So studying yes. language and other high-level abilities, like high-level theory of mind, thinking of other people's yes. minds, those things are harder to study than say vision. Absolutely, absolutely, but, but I get the, the sense <laughs> that you're
0: looking down the li- line yeah. at that sort of thing you yeah. have. It's, is this one, is this your main focus at this time?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think um, <laughs> if I make even a small dent in my lifetime in understanding language, that would be great. Yeah, that would be. Um, that will this be is successful. just such a. Um, there's still many many things that we don't understand. Right. Um, I am interested in also how language, which is evolutionarily quite a late invention, yes. how it interacts with other systems that have been there for you know yeah. um, phylogenetically much longer. Yeah. Um, yeah. So our general. Memory and attention mechanisms, or right. the systems that support social or emotional processing. Right. Um, I
0: would say math also.
1: Yes. De- yes. A lot, is, of,
0: yeah. lot of abstract areas. Abstract. Uh, right. Right. So uh,
1: exactly. They're so very
0: late. They're vulnerable. Logic. They're hmm? late to develop. Hmm? All yes. of that. Yes. Yes.
1: Yes. And there's also so interestingly, even though things like math and logic. Um, happen in areas that are completely non-overlapping with language, as I mentioned. There's interesting properties such that they tend to be in the left hemisphere, yeah, for example, yeah. and so um, we're currently trying to understand whether there is a relationship between, for example, how lateralized language is in people versus how lateralized math and logic are or in those same people, about whether, a lot it's of exactly, these kinds whether of exactly kinds those things, things, things go together. Yes, yeah. um, maybe there's some underlying drive, and that could be because language is really key in the development of some of these abilities. Right, and right. That the brain sense, is
0: a yeah. wee bit complicated. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> right. There's a lot of stuff going on, but we'll yeah. crack it.
0: Well, you have yeah. a lifetime of work cut out yes, for you. I wish you the very best. Thank uh, you, you know What a very rich, interesting area, and yeah, you're right fun. in the... Um, it, it seems like the middle of the universe yeah. around here you know to yeah, work on it's it it's a great
1: place to be it really yeah. is yeah. Thank, thank you, you so very much, much yeah. for joining us fun Thanks. talking to you. Thank
0: okay. you we hope you enjoyed this podcast of a Science for the Public event please check out our website www.scienceforthepublic.org for videos of all our events Lists of upcoming events are Weekly Sci News Roundup Newsletter and Timely Science Information.